Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the Hyperion Hub, your meeting place for all things Disney. Now your hosts. Hello everyone and welcome to the Hyperion Hub, your meeting place for all things Disney. I'm John Alois, joined by Sean Degenhart. Yes, I'm here. And John Rudling Schaefer. Me too. <laughs> I want to thank everybody who gives us great feedback. We get wonderful emails at podcasts at thehyperionhub.com, but we'd also love to interact with you on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at Hub Hyperion. We have a great show this week, but we're going to start it off. But we're going to yeah, start yeah. it off. <laughs> <laughs> but. How about Ann? How about Ann? <laughs> You're going to have to deal with this. First. If you could just suffer through the next three minutes, we'll get you there. <laughs> and... We're going to start it off with our Disney views. And this week, we're going to throw out this question, how early is too early to decorate for Christmas? When it comes to the holiday season, Disney decides that Halloween starts mid-August, and now it's drifting further back into early August, and then Christmas starts November 1st. And this year, and last year I think as well, we decided to put uh, Christmas decorations up early in November, and I can explain why. But first, let's go around the table. Let's start with you, Sean. See what he's doing. <laughs> he's allowing us to say ours piece, and then we're wrong. And, nope. and, and he's going to tell us why he's this right. This is how the nobody's wrong. Does it. Nobody's wrong. Oh, okay. Let's see where this goes. Okay. So as a musician, Christmas busiest time of year, sure. and it's crazy. So I actually start my Christmas preparations for concerts in June. So I mean, I could do Christmas eight months a year. I'd love it. Um, but because of our tight schedules, you know, we're very regimented on. You know, the middle Saturday in November is when we put up the lights on the outside and we start just scheduling things out. So by December 1st, we're full up and running. I'm contractually bound, <laughs> meaning the marriage license, to say that we do nothing, nothing except for buy gifts. Obviously, when there are things on sale and depending on shipping routes and logistics, we may be buying gifts early. But the day after Thanksgiving, we become the cast members at Disney World. Overnight, it becomes Christmas. I thought that would be a you decision. That's a her decision. What what decisions are mine, John? <laughs> I just and I want to put you on the spot and actually get an answer out of this. Let's hash it out now. No, and and I appreciate it and I agree. You know, I have no problem. I know some people love Christmas. I know some people that will put Christmas trees up months in advance and then change them with different holidays yeah. on them and that's fine that's a trend but we we have just always felt that thanksgiving has its own place and to go from pumpkins to well carved pumpkins into plain pumpkins and cornucopias <laughs> then phase into the red and green and i i respect that we just but, oh, you <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> but for us you know it, it the holidays have gotten really crazy like you said i mean we're very busy so we start putting decorations up early November, but it takes you know pretty much half the month because we can only work on it once or twice a week to get everything up. So that's the first reason. The other reason is the kids are getting older. Things are flying by quicker. We like more time with those decorations. So instead of mm -hmm. two holidays, Christmas and New Year's, we get three with the decorations up with Thanksgiving as well. I'm My a fault. bad parent. Yeah. Did you no, hear that? That's <laughs> what I heard. That's, no. <laughs> Again, kidding. no judgment. <laughs> No judgment on our end. And we are totally supported by Disney and the way they do things. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Although I will say, now that the children are of a certain size, then I cannot lift them to put the star on the top of the Aww. tree. 
you know, I get what you're saying, John. It does. It moves quickly and handwritten in our Christmas tree. We have a fake tree and in, in, in the box is the rotating years of who puts oh. the star on and you open that up and, and finally the box died after so many years and <laughs> you did. It was hard to throw the box away because of the memories in there. We had handwritten who was going the next year. So I get it. I do. Yeah. And we actually start watching Christmas movies before. I mean, that's usually August. Sure. We sure. figured out sure. we've got about 180 hours worth of Christmas special DVDs. So we, two I mean, weeks? we have two to weeks schedule worth, right? it out. Cause, I mean, we're all, and we watch you know, a handful of them many times throughout the season. It's hard to schedule anything in our house because everything outside of our house takes precedent. So, you know, we go from day to day. But I did start watching. I watched uh, Jingle All the Way the other night. I do have a long list of Christmas movies that I've never seen before that I hope to get through before the end of the season. Okay, well, we are thrilled to have joining us on the Hyperion Hub today, writer, director, producer, just about anything you could imagine, Kirk Thatcher. Kirk, welcome to the Hyperion Hub. Thank you, gentlemen. It's nice to be here. You have had your hands in four of my favorite franchises, Star Trek, Star Wars, Muppets, and Marvel. So we want to kind of get the backstory on how everything began. So as I understand it, you met and were friends with Joe Johnston from ILM. Yeah, so. I mean, I, I wanted, yeah. I mean, I, I loved, you know, creature movies, King Kong, Frankenstein, Ray Harry, all the Ray Harry Austin films really uh, thrilled me as a kid. And then Sesame Street came out when I was like six. So, uh, you know, all that stuff was a big influence. And by the time I was eight or 10, I knew I wanted to make, I, it's funny. I knew there were two jobs I wanted: either to be an Imagineer at Walt Disney or a movie maker, doing movies with creatures and stuff. And um, <clears throat> so, by the time Star Wars came out, I was looking at ma- there was a magazine called Cinefantastique, which was one of the early. Yeah, if you're old enough to to remember that, um, <clears throat> it chronicled. The, I think it was literally said like a magazine of the of fantasy and science fiction film, and it had an article, a very just almost all text with a little black and white picture of the of a I think an X-wing in the Death Star trench. It's talked about this movie Star Wars coming out like the following summer. So it was seventy six, fall seventy six. It said coming out this summer of seventy seven will be this movie Star Wars. And I saw that picture and you know it said it's supposed to be like lots of special effects and la la la. And then uh, <clears throat> that probably January I was at the like the not the grocery store but like a save on we call like a pharmacy like five of a dime or something yeah like a five and dime and there was a paperback novel with a ralph uh, mccrory painting on mm. it said star wars by george lucas and i said oh I, I heard about that so i bought this paper i still have it someone said if it was it's, it's not a mint condition but it's still it was an original edition with the ralph mccrory painting mm. that was not from the movie but it said something like soon to be a major soon to be a motion picture so I bought it and read it and was just completely blown away. I said, if this movie is half of what this book <laughs> describes it as, I mean, I was already excited about the cantina scene, even though I hadn't seen it just the way it was like all these aliens and I loved creatures. So read the book and then um, Star Wars came out that May, May 25th, as we will always remember, <laughs> not May the 4th, um, <laughs> if, you're, if you're an OG. And... Uh, Saw it, and I think I saw it 10 times that first week. I saw it opening day at Man's Chinese Theater. My mom knew I was such a movie buff. She let me ditch school. It was a Wednesday when movies used to open. And I saw the noon show at Grauman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood with uh, two friends of mine who didn't know anything about it, but I convinced them this would be, you know, 
uh, a good thing to do. And so <clears throat> a couple months, within a couple months that summer, my mom came home and, you know, she knew obviously I loved Star Wars. She'd taken me to the screening. She said, I met a woman at church today whose son worked on Star Wars. I'm like, what, 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 what did he do? Oh, he worked in the special effects, which is what I want to do. I said, well, what, what is, what's his name? She goes, I think it's Joe. And I'm like, Joe Johnston? <laughs> She's like, yeah, that's it. Her name is, you know, whatever his mom's name was, like Mary Beth Johnson. And I'm like, I have his books, like the sketchbook had come out. <laughs> and uh, so... <laughs> it's like like uh, Patton on Rommel. I read your book. Um, so I said, um, I would like to meet her. And so the next Sunday, I, you know, put on a little, my little suit. I was 15 at the time. Put on, you know, dressed up and went to church, which I wasn't super excited about doing as a 15-year-old boy. <laughs> and met Mrs. Johnston, and she was very sweet. I remember she was very genteel, had like a text. She was from Texas. And I said, you know, I would love to meet your son. I'm a huge fan of Star Wars. And she said, well, I'm, you know, I'm sure that could be arranged. So I think she just gave me his phone number and I called him. And, you know, at this time, it's funny looking back. I think Joe was about 26, maybe, you know, 26, 27 years old. And I was 15. So maybe he was 25. But I mean, he was, you know, nowadays. You know, but this guy had just been the production designer and storyboard at Star Wars. So I went and met him, and it turned out that ILM was, I grew up in Van Nuys, was about a mile, and I could have ridden my bike to ILM. It was <laughs> within two miles of my house. So uh, <clears throat> I, I didn't even drive at this point. I was 15, so I think either my mom dropped me off or Joe picked me up. Somehow I got, or maybe I did ride my bike, because I always say I could ride my bike there. Anyway, I met him at ILM, which was just working on Galactica at that point. And he gave me a tour and I showed him my drawings and my, you know, pictures, Polaroids and my sculpts and stuff. I said, I really want to, you know, this is the kind of thing I want to do. I want to work at ILM and, oh my God, it's right down the street from my house. Like, this is great. So uh, he was super kind and, and just, you know, looked at my drawings and said, you know, study this, study that. And, and just was a nice guy, <clears throat> really nice and, you know, generous with his time. And so I just kept in touch with him. Of course, a year later, year and a half later, they moved to Marin County. I'm like, no, <laughs> I'll, ILM stay there and became Apogee. But I, you know, I, I stayed mainly in touch with Joe was the only person I met at ILM at the time. And so, uh, empire, they made empire up in Marin County. And I graduated at that point, it was 1980. I graduated from high school and me and my brother and about four friends drove up to San Francisco in our truck <laughs> And we, we went to like um, Yosemite and then we went to the city and we had no money. So we, we literally would sleep in parking lots of, uh, wow. of uh, industrial areas. And I think one night I slept in the bushes. I just had a sleeping bag and rolled under the bushes. Anyway, on that weekend, <laughs> we, uh, we went to ILM, the new one in San Rafael, and Joe gave us all a tour. And at this point, they had like, you know, the model room, which was the size of a big walk-in closet, but every spaceship from the last two Star Wars. Wow. Yeah. And they had a rubber room. So it, originally ILM, when we visited, still I think four bays of this one building were like a body shop and a furniture maker. <laughs> it wasn't even the entire building yet. Um, and so I had made this creature in, my, in the three years in high school. I had made this rubber monster for a, a movie that friends and I had made, Super 8 film. And so I brought it up to kind of show my work and I gave it to Joe and then he gave it to the guys at the creature shop who no one was there because we were there on a Saturday. 
Um, but at least now they had a piece of work that showed I could sculpt, mold, cast, and paint a creature. So uh, I went, I started UCLA that fall and went through the fall semester. And I wanted to be a film major and learned that you wouldn't even be able to touch a camera until you were, I think, a junior. And I've been, I've been making movies, you know, I'm Super 8 films since I was 10 or 12. So I called Joe up, January rolled around, and they had announced that they were starting work on the third Star Wars movie. And I, I called him <clears throat> and said, hey, I want to, I will do anything to work on the next movie. I'll move up to Marin. I'll, you know, sleep on a couch. I don't care. I'll make coffee. And he said, uh, I tell the story a lot, but so I apologize to listeners who heard it before. I said, uh, he said, who have you been talking to? And he said, I said, what do you mean? He goes, who told you? I said, who told me what? So this is like a Monday or Tuesday. He said, I just gave him your name of list to people to interview Whoa. for the creature shop huh. in Marin County here. And I was like, what? And he said, yeah, I, how did you know? I said, I, I didn't know. I just thought when I read the news they were doing it, I should call you. And he said, no one told you. I said, I swear to God, who do I know up there except you? <laughs> um, and so he said, yeah, I just gave him your name for people to interview because George wants a creature shop in Marin, not all over in London. So again, this is before the internet and fact and fax machines. So he wanted to have a much closer relationship with most of the creatures. So uh, short story long, I uh, <laughs> went up and interviewed, brought up a portfolio of drawings and Polaroids and stuff. And they had my, creature thing and then uh so i interviewed with tom smith who was the new general manager and then i had lunch with chris Wallace and ken ralston phil tippett wasn't there i think he was taking a break they were just finishing up dragon slayer and so chris and ken <clears throat> spent the entire lunch telling me i was an idiot literally using the word you're an idiot you're gonna you, your parents will pay for ucla and i said well I, I i was paying for it i got a job like you know so i could get, get i didn't want to stay at home whatever you can get a college education you're gonna throw that away to just work on star wars you're so dumb like it's a terrible business do not get into this business if you have any chance to do anything else and i was like hey, you guys come on <laughs> and, and you know I, I, 35 40 years later i realized they weren't joking but of course you know they both had had stellar careers and won oscars not at that point uh, but they, they they didn't follow their own advice and stayed in the business um, so it did not dissuade me and, I uh, got the job. Essentially I got the job as $400 a week for a 60 hour week, uh, got an apartment. My parents drove up with some furniture and then helped me. They bought me a bed, I think, so I could have somewhere to sleep in my little one room apartment. And I started working at, uh, at ILM. So that was sometime around March because I just turned 19. I think I called Joe before my 18th, my 19th birthday and then uh, got hired and then I turned 19 and then moved up within a month or so. And uh, my first job was painting the new, so they just uh, leased these new buildings to do, to expand ILM because now they were doing, uh, you know, two or three movies at a time, not just one. And my first job was on a scissor lift with an airless sprayer spraying the entire interior of this three bay, you know, industrial building. Uh, and that's where it started. And I made shelves and I just did all this kind of grunt work setting up the shop. And uh, <clears throat> yeah, I worked on Jedi for almost two years, starting at the beginning of all the creature design and going all the way through post-production and shooting blue screen with Ewoks and Salacious and all that stuff. Wow. So I remember watching the making of Return of the Jedi film. No. And I remember Salacious 
packing himself in a box to be shipped over. That was me. That was you. Yes. <laughs> I, Amazing. I didn't build him. I I puppeteered him. Uh, I puppeteered him and did his laugh. And uh, with Billy, there's a picture of me somewhere on the internet with me and Billy D. Williams, where uh, Billy was, you know, saying, "Well, these creatures uh, do this, that's that." And then there's <laughs> Salacious sitting next to me, goes, ah, and jumps the box. <laughs> so yeah, so I I I did not do Salacious in the movie. Um, Tim Tim uh, Rose did him, and my friend Mark Dodson did the voice. But I did the puppeteering and the voice for the special. And I'm in the special of the creature shop. You can see me. I was wearing a hat even back then. It was a black Greek fisherman's hat and I have a beard like I do now. It just isn't white. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> And Phil Tippett, it's funny, uh, Phil Tippett. And I never watched this thing because it aired on TV and you couldn't, you know, if you missed it, you missed it. And I missed it. And a friend of mine said, are you that guy, like the young guy that Phil's talking about? I said, so I finally watched it a few years ago. And Phil goes, I even found this 18-year-old kid who like knew how to do a bunch of stuff and, and hired him. And he, turned out to be you know useful and, and so my buddy who's an amazing creature maker norman cabrera uh who works up almost on all of guillermo del toro's movies uh said i saw that and i was 18 i'm like if that guy can you know if they're hiring 18 year olds uh so he moved out to la and he's turned out to be one of them but i didn't i'd known we've been friends for years before i knew that that's what inspired him and i didn't even know phil mentioned you know that he'd hired some kid so it was kind of fun to see that finally so uh, having yeah. seen you in that, you know, probably did not recognize you or, you know, have any no, idea of who you that. were. But when I discovered that you were the guy that flipped off William Shatner <laughs> in Star Trek Four, that caught yes. my attention. So what's the, how did you make the universe jump from Star yeah. Wars to Star Trek? Well, there was a, a bit in between. There was, um, so... I finished up on Jedi and then worked on a few things at ILM, just little jobs, Star Trek two and three. Obviously there's a gap in there. Uh, I made the, um, I worked on the SETI eel worms and the big checkoff gear. And mm -hmm. then on three, I worked, uh, helped make the Klingon lizard dog. I called it. There's some name that the fans <laughs> dubbed it, but we just called it lizard dog. And I puppeteered that on set in Star Trek Three. So my arm, I was crouched under the chair that Chris Lloyd was sitting in mm -hmm. with my right arm out, doing my left arm. I forget. One of my arms is out, and I'm moving the dog's head and keeping him alive. And uh, there's actually a picture in Cinefantastique of me in a white Tyvek suit. I think I have short hair and no beard in that. And I'm holding up one of the worms or snake worms that Chris Lloyd chokes when he's on the planet and he finds the coffin. So I did that, and then I did Gremlins for about nine months with Chris Wallace, <laughs> who had left the Creature Shop to start his own company, and I'd started working with him on weekends, and uh, he got Gremlins, and so I set up his mold shop and paint shop and designed the Gremlins paint jobs and designed their eyes and made a lot of their eyes. And uh, also, <laughs> during that time, I, let's see, it's a weird timeline, it all jumbles together. So then I moved to L.A. I left Gremlins because I didn't want to just be a mold room guy, um, just doing molding and painting because a lot of nasty chemicals. So I moved to L.A., back to L.A., started at UCLA to study computer graphics. And somewhere in there, David Fincher and I, who've been friends, we were the two youngest guys at ILM, started our production company to do rock videos. And I did a slew of rock videos with David as his production designer. Um, we did... Uh, mainly Rick Springfield videos. We did Bop to You Drop. <laughs> I was the, I designed and was the alien king or the alien overlord in that and designed all the creatures and was sort of production designer for it. 
And then Henry Selleck we hired to be art director. Henry Selleck who went on to do Nightmare Before Christmas. So, you know, if you worked at ILM in that Bay Area film group in the early 80s, it was a pretty tight-knit group that everyone went off to do fairly well. David Fincher's done all right. Um, <laughs> so, we, yeah, we did Brock videos for about nine months. A bunch of Rick Springfield, there's an album or a video album called Beat of the Live Drum. So I was the production designer on that whole thing. And I have cameos in a couple of them. Uh, particularly, uh, I was just watching it. I hadn't seen it in years, and you can see it on YouTube now. Uh, Dance this world away. I'm a I'm a kid show clown, and I do these. It's funny, very very prophetic. I do these these mutant Muppets that are sort of like ones in a toxic waste can, and <laughs> other ones, and then I'm in this stupid clown outfit playing with nuclear missiles. Um, with Rick as kind of a Mister Rogers type. So yeah, it was fun. I mean, rock videos back then was was a lot of work and not a lot of money, but you could kind of do you know, whatever you could convince the label or the artist. So then I went back to UCLA. Um, somehow I also crammed in storyboarding the entire movie Cat's Eye. Uh, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> so I was at UCLA. I met Louis Teague. I was designing creatures for Cat's Eye. They found me because of, um, I guess, the ILM recommendation because it's funny because somebody wants to write a book and I'm starting to try and, you know, remember all this chronologically. But I went to Wilmington, North Carolina. Dino De Laurentiis had just built the studios there. And I went out there and I was originally hired to design the creature at, in the uh, little Drew Barrymore story called Cat's Eye. Uh, and Carla and Bobby was going to build it. And Carla basically said, I can't build these designs. I need to build my design. And the director, Louis Teague, and I hit it off. And he said, well, you can draw. Do you want a storyboard? I need a storyboard artist. So I said, sure. So I moved out to New York for about a month, staying at the Mayflower Hotel, and then moved to North Carolina for about two and a half, three months, and storyboarded most of the movie, any of the scenes that weren't just dialogue scenes. And then I moved back to LA and was going to study computer science at UCLA. And that's when Paramount sent out the word they were looking for an assistant for Leonard Nimoy who knew the film business, but particularly new special effects. And so the, uh, the TA at the UCLA animation department, which was where I landed because they had computers and you could touch a camera before you were a junior, uh, came to me and he said, Hey, you know, they they've put out this call for an assistant to Leonard Nimoy for this next Star Trek movie. And you know, it, you, you kind of have the right, it sounds like you have the right resume. So met, met, met Leonard. So now this is around 84, probably fall of 84. Met Leonard, we had lunch, talked about everything, got along famously. He was such a lovely, warm person, you know, exactly the opposite of Spock. You know, he was not that he wasn't logical, but he was very, had that very deep voice and just like, tell me, uh, you know, you, and I showed him the production design, all the stuff I'd done. And, and it ended up was like tailor made for this job because he wanted someone, he felt on Star Trek three that ILM had he didn't know about special effects he was not a technician he was an actor and he knew story and, and acting and character and he wanted someone literally on his payroll that would tell him the truth and i had just left ilm a year earlier so i knew everybody and uh so it just worked out and then we just happened to hit it off really well and so he made me associate producer before i think before we started shooting because they were rewriting the script from scratch when i started they had, they had, Mearson and Crickus had done the Eddie Murphy version where it was a little more of a, um, you know, the MacGuffin, or it was, it was still the idea of gathering all these things, 
but Eddie Murphy was going to be the role that ultimately uh, uh, Kathy Hicks played. Huh. And it was going to wow. be a little funnier. Eddie Murphy was a huge Star Trek fan. And they just couldn't make a deal with him. And Leonard just thought it was too silly. And so he came up with this, like, what is the one thing that we would not have in the 23rd century that we have now? And he came up with a whale idea and they rewrote the whole script. Because originally it was they were just trying to gather the elements to make dilithium crystals. Because, you know, the classic, oh, the dilithium crystals right. didn't work through the time travel. So how they went back in time, I don't know. I never read that draft of the script. So uh, they hired Nick Myers to start writing the center of the movie, which was the all the time travel stuff. And then Harv Bennett wrote the opening and the ending. So Harv covered the 23rd century. Nick covered the, 20, or the, 19, the 20th century. And uh, that's when I started. So they were writing the script, and uh, it was an amazing job. Harv, Harv came to me and said, well, we have all this technical stuff. Do you want to write it? You, you're, you're a science fiction fan. You like this stuff. So I got to write all the, all the uh, Vulcan dialogue. I got to make up Vulcan. There was no Vulcan <laughs> language. So all the Vulcan workers kind of shouting in the background. I said, I told Leonard, I'm, I'm making a sort of a blend of Hebrew and nonsense, um, which he liked. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, or sorry, Hebrew and Welsh. And then just pure jaunt nonsense. And then I got to write all the techno babble at uh, Starfleet Command when the, the power grids are going down and the world is flooding. And so all that stuff that Grace Lee Whitney and all the uh, Michael Berryman with that amazing alien makeup, I wrote all that just dialogue. And then I got to write. So this is just at the writing stage. I got to write the questions that uh, the computer asked Spock at the beginning. Like, wow. who said logic is the meta of civilization? Such familiar is correct. So I wrote those questions, and then Leonard said, well, you wrote them, so you read them. Just as he needs something to, to work with, right? He needs something to react to. So I said, okay. So I just recorded it with the sound guy, and they, they sped it up a little bit, so I sounded like this. And it was just supposed to be scratch track. And so then they animated all these questions to go with, you know, what is the molecular composition of, I forgot, galidium, all that gibberish I wrote. Uh, well, not gibberish. It's based on scientific stuff, but I got to make up Vulcan philosophy, the matron of Vulcan <laughs> philosophy. That's and good. and that, it's, that's become canon, I'm told. Uh, <laughs> what people really, what I only announced, I think, last year <laughs> was that I put in a Star Wars Easter egg. T-Planet Hoth is the planet Hoth. Just <laughs> scramble a little bit. Literally, just take T and put it uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> F, F from the set of take a T from the end of planet and just make it to planet Hoth. So the planet Hoth. Um, so the planet Hoth is the matron of Vulcan philosophy. Uh, and How do so you I feel? got to write all that. Uh, yeah, exactly. How do you feel? How do you feel? Correct. Um, That's great. So I got to write and record all those. And then the punk scene came about. So the, the movie was written and there was a scene in the middle with, with this punk on the bus. And <clears throat> I'd been in a band in, in high school and I'd been kind of a new, you know, a punk, not really a, you know, hardcore punk, but I'd had the sort of a sh short mohawk where the sides are saved and it was like maybe in two inches tall on the top. Kind of a, a wussy, you know, middle class <laughs> bourgeois punk uh, mohawk. And at this time on the movie, my hair had, I'd been letting it grow. And I said, hey, I want to, I'll play the punk in the scene. And Leonard's like, really? <laughs> yeah, I'll, uh, I'll, uh, I'll, I did. I said I'll do a drawing of what I'm going to look like, like because I I know the I have a friend who did my hair and I'll and I'll, I'll play the punk. He's like, well, um, let me think about it. 
So I didn't bother him for about a week. And we would, at the end of every day, we would have a meeting, just wrap up the day. This is all pre-production before we started shooting. So we were pretty much done. Leonard would pour himself a nice big gin and tonic. And we just, I'd sit on the couch in his office and we'd just shoot the breeze, talk about life, universe, everything, and work. And he was, he, that's what I mean. It was sort of like working with your favorite uncle. He'd be like, so how's, you know, how's your dating life? Like, how are your parents? Like, it was very convivial, not, not a standard, you know, like, well, you're done for the day. You can go home. So at the end of one of these days, my mind, it's like a Tuesday. So it had been at least or about a week since I'd asked and I told myself, I'm not going to bother him. I don't want to be a pest. I got to work with this guy for another year and change. So I'm leaving. I said, oh, you know, have a good day. And, and he stops me right as I'm going out the door. He goes, ah, by the way, you can do it. And I'm like, wait, what? Wait, <laughs> seriously? And uh, yeah. And so uh, he said, yeah. And I said, okay, you're not going to be sorry. I'm going to do it. So I did a drawing. I actually found that drawing about two years ago. Luckily, it saved it of me as the punk. Uh, just a like uh, colored pencil sketch. But it's pretty close to what I look like. Uh, and, and so I went and I got my hair bleached and shaved the sides and dried it road coat orange. Wow. That wasn't a wig. That was no, your actual hair. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd had it before and I'm like, I didn't care. It's not like I was a, you know, had a career as a model. So, uh, I had bright orange hair for about four months <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And so I got to play the punk and, and two things I got to add while we were filming. One was my, cause originally that he knocked me out and then he turned off the, um, the boombox. Boom yeah. And I said, wouldn't it be funny if my face just plants? I do a face plant and it shuts, it hits the button. And he's like, yeah, great, less business. So that was my little add to that. And then the other thing I'm really proud of. So I was a Mac user from a 512 from the second version of a, the Macintosh computer, which had come out maybe a year, a year and a half before we started working on Star Trek. So I brought my Mac to work and that was my work computer just for writing notes and all the dialogue I wrote for Star Trek, I wrote on a Mac and it was printed out in a dot matrix printer. So when the scene came for them to be in the uh, uh, acrylic plant, I said, well, it's gotta be a Mac because you know, that's a design computer. And uh, I said, and you know, it uses the mouse. So when Scotty goes to, I said, originally Scotty just started typing. I said, no, no, this is, be this is me being a Star Trek fan. I said, no, he's got to talk to the computer. He doesn't know. He probably thinks, well, at this point, you just talk to it. So he goes, hello, computer. And it doesn't do anything. And they're like, oh, that's good. And I said, and the guy says, use the mouse. So he thinks, I said, they look like microphones. So he picks it up. So that was my other gag. So I got to write gags. I mean, I just, it was so great. I, I, I was incredibly spoiled. Uh, and it's just Leonard just trusted me. Like, again, we had that first meeting and we, we got along. And, and he just said, it was interesting. Having become a director many years later, He's saying the important thing about a director, at least the way he looked at it, was you have to focus on the story and the characters. If the audience doesn't care about the characters, they won't care about the story. And if they don't care about the story, they won't like your movie. And he said, I, I want you to focus on all this technical stuff. Just make sure it goes smoothly. And, it, you know, if, if, I, if I like it or you like it and I like it, then you just make sure it gets done. And, and so I was like, great. So that was how he gave me all this responsibility. And I was 23 years old. Wow. Um, I know. I, at the time, I was like, well, I could do this. I'm 23. I worked at ILM for three years. Um, it was, yeah, shocking now. I, like, I wouldn't let a 23-year-old park my car. Well, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I don't know what uh, convinced him I was up to the challenge, but I got along great, obviously, with him. And then uh, Ralph Winter, who was the kind of a 
day-to-day producer. Harv Bennett was the writing producer, creative producer, and Harv was the, you know, wine producer, they call it now. And we got along swimmingly, and then Brooke Breton was sort of Ralph's uh, associate producer. So she and I, and she was more in post, I was more during production, and it was just this amazing experience. I got to, from basically the first draft of that, what the script became, all the way through to the premiere. Leonard and I stayed friends all the way through until he passed. The, we, uh, he texted or we uh, texted each other about two weeks before he passed away. We just, you know, text each other on the phone. He, he liked texting. It was faster. And, and uh, yeah, but we would have lunch, dinner a couple times a year. And, Fascinating. Yeah, I, um, uh, wonderful documentary on him. I think it's on Netflix. Yeah. The uh, Sun Maid. Yeah. Yeah. Really well done. I Before we get too far away from this, I have to ask a question. I've been dying to ask somebody who survived <laughs> the Vulcan neck pinch. How long oh, were you yeah. out and did you feel pain? <laughs> <laughs> no, you just literally, I don't know if you see my eyes roll the back. You just, it's like, I guess fainting. Um, yeah, he probably no, can't answer up, it. Yeah. I, I woke up and my face was all, you know, I had the grid of the speaker on my face and, <laughs> and people were laughing at me and like, ha ha. And I was like, I don't, I didn't even know what happened until I saw the movie. Uh, well, that's outstanding. It, to, to answer your question, literally or realistically, when Leonard first did it, I was wearing this cheap leather jacket that I bought on Melrose. And, you know, cheap leather is sort of like, like heavy cardboard. It doesn't, it's not subtle, supple. So when he, and I have a, like a two inch dog collar on my neck. So when he originally did the pinch, he, t- all he does is basically touch you. I couldn't feel it. So I'm there with a boom box trying not to look at him because the gag is, you know, and I'm kind of trying to, and, and so the first take was blown because I could, I said, you really actually have to, to pinch down. He's like, oh, all right. That was funny. <laughs> you showed I, him how to, to do it. That. I, yeah. Yeah. So that was, uh, that was fun. But yeah. And yeah. So that was great. And then pretty much right after Star Trek, I think even before it, uh, uh, I think it premiered in the in the fall, wasn't it? Like in November, oh. Star Trek Four, I think it was in November, Christmas, something like, like 86, that. Like 86, I think, yeah. yeah. It was it was 86. I met Jim Henson that summer. So the summer of 86, um, sounds like a Brian Adams cue. It was the summer. <laughs> uh, I, I met Jim through a mutual friend and I pitched a, I was developing shows with creatures and puppets and comedy and, and he and I hit it off and I started working with him uh, pretty much right after Star Trek uh, and worked with him the last five years he was alive. So yeah, I, I jokingly said I went from George Lucas to Leonard Nimoy to uh, Jim Henson wow. all before I, all before I was 30. Uh, so, We're coming yeah, up on uh, 35 years, by the way. Uh, yeah, it, it uh, debuted in November of uh, yeah. 86. Yeah, it was a Thanksgiving. Yeah, so 35 years ago. Uh, so yeah, so I've been in the business 40 years now. Wow. I can't tell you how many times I will still say, computer, <laughs> hello, computer. <laughs> so funny. there's little quotes, and I will watch it again. I'm like, that's where yeah. I got that, well, that line. Guy, it was that from, guy wrote it. Exactly. <laughs> His <laughs> computer had a cameo. I, the line I always remember, because it just still makes me laugh, and just Leonard's delivery was so flat. When, uh, when Kirk says... Uh, it's in all the great literature of the time, the novels of Harold Robbins, the works of Jacqueline Suzanne, and Leonard goes, just dead man. Ah, the giants. <laughs> Any time there's some executive note or something that's, you know, they're saying, you know, we want a movie, a good movie, like whatever, everyone go, ah, the giants. The giants. <laughs> just, it still makes me, just that his delivery is so perfect for that. And they, 
Shatner and, and, and Bill Shatner and Leonard Nimoy did have this amazing comedic chemistry because they were friends. I mean, you know, they weren't like they didn't hang out every weekend, but there was a mutual respect there. So when they did those scenes, the scene in the truck, I mean, it was everything to not laugh when they're with Jillian in the truck. And you have a ton of a ton of stories about working on Trek, which was great. But I know we could. Just, I'm going to save it for the book. I'm going to do a book about. <laughs> I'm going to do a, a book about Jedi, probably up through David Fincher videos and Gremlins. Then I'm going to do one working on Star Trek, and then I'm do one on the Muppets. Which so three books. Well, we know we drifted away from Disney a little bit this week, but Kirk Thatcher's storied career is extremely interesting, and he had some wonderful stories to share. We'll get back to Disney stories next week in the second half of our interview with him. Until then, please make sure you follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at Hub Hyperion. Email us at podcast at thehyperionhub.com. Make sure you email us. We're looking for Disney stories, your Disney stories. We'd love to share them on the show. Once again, podcast at thehyperionhub.com. Until next week. Have a great one, everybody. We're glad you could join us. We'd love to hear from you. You can email or send us a recorded audio message at podcast at thehyperionhub.com. Find us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The Hyperion Hub is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or its subsidiaries. We'll meet you next time at the Hyperion Hub. (laughs) 